Okay, well, good morning again. Let me invite you to turn in your worship guide to page three or in your Bibles to the first chapter of Exodus. I want to introduce myself to you. My name is Darren. I'm pastor here and uh, excited to welcome you today. We are beginning a new sermon series from the book of Exodus. I believe we have a picture of it. There it is. This is our new series that we're calling With a Mighty Hand, Becoming Reacquainted with the Power of God. We'll be going through really the first section of the book of Exodus. And uh, to start it off, I want to invite you to listen with open ears as I read from this, the book that we love. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply." And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Hytham and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, 
and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we come to this time and we sit under these words, uh, these ancient words. And Lord, I recognize that as we come here, as we've listened to these songs, as we've heard uh, this call to confession, as we've received your unequivocal pardon, Lord, I recognize that as we assemble this morning, there is no doubt that we come from all sorts of different places. Some of us come here uh, and we have been familiar with this story that has been read since we were little children. Others of us come here and this story seems strange. Uh, it's, it, these are strange words and these are words that we're not even sure uh, if they're real, if they're true, if they're historic. And more than that, we're not even true if they have any relationship to the things in our lives that are bothering us, that are holding us back, that are keeping us awake. Uh, that are doing damage to our heart through stress. Lord, I pray that whatever place we find ourselves in this morning, whether we come here and our lives are very comfortable, or whether we come here uh, and our lives are deeply broken, deeply flawed, in much pain and much anxiety. Lord, whether we come here with much belief in you or dealing with all kinds of doubts and questions and objections about you. I pray that you would give us grace to see that in the way that matters the most, that we all come here ultimately the same. We've all come in this room with an overwhelming and an unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, and to be changed by you. And I pray that you would give us grace to see how you have addressed this need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome again. Really excited to begin our new series with you. Uh, As we begin the spring here, uh, we turn to the Old Testament as is our tradition, and uh, as we have been previously in the book of Genesis, it made sense to me that we would come to the book of Exodus. But more than that, uh, what has really gripped me about Exodus, particularly this section, is the story that is being told and how I believe it relates to myself, and then frankly, how it relates to you. You see, the story of Exodus, as uh, has been brought out in the opening reading that I read, concerns a people who had experienced profound things at the hand of their God, right? As as Joseph was led uh, to Egypt, sold as a slave, and then through Joseph, Israel learned that God was at work to save this people through an incredible series of events. They then were saved, and generations go by, years go by, and what happens to them? Answer the same thing that happens to you, those of you who have known God, those of you who have experienced his power. The same thing happened to Israel is the exact same thing that happens to you, I assure you, 
And that is that you forget. Right? If you have experienced God's power, chances are really high that just after a little bit of time, you will forget about it. So I've shared this before, but one of the common uh, conversations I've had with some uh, friends and folks who do not consider themselves Christians, one of the common objections is, goes something like this. You know, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because in the Bible, this God is described and represented as a God of great power. But in my life and in my experience, I don't see it. It's not happening. The things that I read about, such as uh, in this book here, we're going to read about some incredible miracles as we walk through these chapters. And the objection goes something like this. If God is real, then why doesn't he keep doing these things? And friends, the objection, uh, as I considered it, goes something like this. I can't believe in the God of power because if God had this kind of power, then he would wield his power in the way that I expect. But what we find on the pages of Scripture, and in this uh, book in particular, is that God does wield his power, but he wields it in ways that we do not expect. We also see about us, and we see about Israel as our example here, that there is no limit in the human soul to the ability to forget God's power. See, as uh, Ryan made reference, we will see uh, in this book Israel experiencing the creme de la creme of God's power. They will experience things that will blow their minds to no limit, and yet, even in the same generation, it will be gone from their consciousness quicker than you know it. And so, friends, my desire for myself, for my family, for you, is that as we go about living as God's people here in Israel, I am convinced that we need to become reacquainted with the power of God. Or for some of you, we could drop the prefix re. Some of you need to become acquainted with God's power. Some of you are sitting here and saying, it's not that I've forgotten. I have never experienced it. My desire is that God would be pleased to draw near to you and to show you his power, to give you a new perspective whereby you look and long and seek to access that power in your lives, in particular for the mission that he has called us to. So what I want to do is get into it this morning. Paul will describe the power of God with these words in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. He will say, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. You see, Paul will describe the power of God in this, these terms. He will say, God's power exceeds our ability to imagine. Do you hear that? Right, and I have a, you know, the Pesnell gift, we don't have many gifts, Pesnells, but the Pesnell gift that we all have is we have massive imaginations. I mean, we can just imagine the most crazy things. And God says here that his power extends even beyond our imagination. So how, what is it like? How is it wielded? Uh, this passage that's before us is going to answer some of these questions. And now, friends, as we get into this passage, I want to try to help this become a little more personal to you. 
What I'd like to ask you to do as we enter this text is I want you to think in your mind and focus in on one present fear in your life. It doesn't have to be the biggest fear, right? You know, the biggest fear of my life when I was uh, a new parent, we were living in New York City, and the biggest fear, where's Chrissy? I don't know where she is. Well, she would, she would answer this just like I would. Our biggest fear is that we would drop our son while getting on the subway, and he'd fall between that crack, right? That's a really frightening thing to imagine. And we used to talk about that. We both had the same fear, you know? We don't really fear that anymore. You know, it never happened, right? So that was our biggest fear. But what about you? What's a present fear that you have in your life? What's, what bothers you right now? I know that there's something for all of you, right? I want you to name that fear in your own minds, okay? Just name it. Give it a name. All right? Now that you have it, let's get into this passage with that in mind and see how God's power might look to address it. Number one, uh, the world as a struggle for power. See, the passage begins uh, bringing us up to date with what's been happening to the people of Israel since the time of Joseph. They come to Egypt, they stay in Egypt, they grow significantly in number, and we're introduced to this unnamed person who occupies the office of Pharaoh. And the first thing we learn about Pharaoh, with all of his military might, with all of his resources at hand, with all that he would have in this prestige of world power, is that he was afraid. Now let that sink in for a moment. Here's a man who in his day would be unrivaled in the area of power and authority and influence and the ability to make things happen. And what's the first thing we learn about him? Answer, he was not simply afraid. What does the passage say? Look with me in verse 12. It says that the Egyptians as a people were in dread of the people of Israel, that they were afraid. And so in response to their fear, what we find is that Pharaoh decides that he will begin a campaign of oppression and control and enslavement of the people of Israel. And friends, I've thought about this uh, for a bit, and I wonder, you know, if you have been the sort of the victim of oppression, right, or you're maybe not, that's not your story, but you're really concerned about that happening in our world, right? One way to understand the reality of oppression is that to some extent, it is very often the product of fear, right? That was the case for Pharaoh. Pharaoh was afraid of the people of Israel, was afraid of the way in which they were growing, and so he begins a campaign of oppression against them. He begins a campaign of enslavement. He makes their lives bitter. He seeks to do this as a way to regain control and confidence and to let his fears somehow relax. And friends, I will tell you that, I want to just speak to you in general, if if God is not at work in your fears, right, and I want to say particularly for parents, by the way, right, for those of you who, in response to my question, your child came up, right, maybe it wasn't the subway, okay, we don't have sub, we are getting a train in, in Phoenixville, I think, so maybe some of you will <laughs> join me in this fear, right, but if for some of you, a child came to mind as you were answering this question, right, you have a particular risk, I would say. 
you have a particular risk, and that is in response to your fears of your children, guess what you very well might do? Answer, seek to control. I was contemplating how, um, you know, there have been previous Christian movements. Um, don't see them as much today, but sort of in the, in the previous generation, I, I think that to some extent, I'm not saying this was true about all, but to some extent, the previous Christian homeschooling movement to some extent, was motivated out of fear, right? It sought to say, you know, I'm afraid of what's going to happen to my children, so I'm going to isolate them. And I'm not uh, trying to criticize that necessarily, but what I'm saying is that to some extent, in my experience, that that movement was the product of fear. And we see that this is normal, that when you have fears, when God does not address those directly, one response that is commonly the case is the attempt to control. Maybe it's not to oppress, but it is to control. And the Bible is showing our world in general throughout the pages of Scripture, and in this passage in particular, as a struggle between forces and which one will uh, win out in terms of influence. It's interesting, if you read in the New Testament, Paul will actually go here quite a bit. He'll say, the struggle of the church in Ephesians is against whom? Powers, rulers, and authorities, right? He's describing the spiritual realm, and he's saying, you know, if we understand reality, if we understand this world, if we understand the unseen components of this world, we understand it as a struggle between forces. And that is very accurate in describing what's happening between particularly the power center of Egypt and the hand of God. To understand uh, this section of the book of Exodus, and even more broadly, the entire book, this book is introducing to us a struggle of influence between the unseen God and between the greatest military force of its day. And you see, what's happening here is that Pharaoh is, is to some extent, rightly afraid of this people. But what the passage will strongly hint at is that his fear is misplaced. You see, Pharaoh is afraid of the number of, of Israel, Israelites, that they're growing in number. And so his strategy is to try to reduce that number. Right? First, he begins by setting taskmasters over them that, you know, let's make them too busy to make babies and we'll just give them too much work to do. Right? We'll just wreck their bodies through this enslavement. We'll make them live in absolute dread of me. That doesn't work, right? So what's the next thing they do? Well, he seeks to control the midwives. And I just want to give you a really simple piece of pastoral advice, right? Don't ever mess with a midwife, okay? <laughs> You've ever known a midwife, they are not the people to mess with. They, they don't, they, you know, they face life and death on a daily basis and they are just, they are tough as nails. You don't want to mess with them. Pharaoh seeks to control the midwives, right? He, tell, he commands them, to kill the, the male children that are born. And the midwives, of course, you know, they use the oldest excuse in the book, right? They say, you know, Pharaoh, we really wanted to obey you. We really tried. We did our best. But, you know, Hebrew women are vigorous. It's always the vigorous women that are the, <laughs> you know, that are the reason that we can't just simply, we tried and we simply can't control them. They just give birth before we arrive. And so Pharaoh, of course, he uh, ups his escalation here, and then he commands his people. He says, when you see 
a Hebrew male child, throw the child into the river, throw the child into the Nile. And friends, I just want to try to ask you to envision yourself as one of these two women, right? I want you to try to get this picture in your mind. They are summoned by the most powerful man in the world. They enter his throne room, right? And when you're, when you're in a place of this power, the throne room is meant to convey the absolute majesty of the office, the ability to simply ask for anything, and your staff makes it happen in a moment. And this man summons these two women who are used to working behind the scenes, right? They are not used to being out front. They are behind the scenes people. They are most comfortable, you know, with families in the privacy of that so sacred moments of birth. And they are in this room. Imagine the adrenaline that they are feeling, right? Imagine the heart rate. If you've ever had any kind of experience remotely similar to this, right? Where you're in the room of someone who's just very presence results in your body producing more adrenaline. And as he is giving them strict instructions, what do they do? They completely ignore him. Now imagine the courage that that would take. It's interesting, Walter Brueggemann points out something that I found to be really fascinating. As he was uh, lecturing on this passage, he said, Pharaoh in the pages of Exodus, isn't, we are never told his name. For all of his power, for all of his might, we are never told his actual name. But for all of history, these two women, Shipra and Puah, will be remembered forever. Right? Why? Because for these women, they, they had more reverence for the unseen God than they did for the most powerful man in the world. And in response, God blesses them. And friends, I want to tell you, this is the first thing we learn about how God's power is wielded, right? This objection that I receive, you know, God's power, he's not real because it's not wielded in the way I think. Well, yes, it's not wielded in the way you think because God chose to wield his power, not first through miracles, not through the ocean, you know, parting the seas, not through the miracles, but through the midwives, in behind the scenes through two women who had more regard for their God than they had fear for this office. That's where God's power is wielded. It's the first thing we see. The second thing that we see is that God's power is wielded in such a way as to subvert the powers of the world, but to do so in a very surprising, and we might even say ironic way, don't we? Right? We see that in, in what happens next. So as Pharaoh finally settles on this uh, campaign for infanticide, killing the male children, throwing them into the Nile, we read about this Levite couple. That's verse 1 of chapter 2. They, a woman conceives, they bear a son, and she's able to hide him for three months, right? which is no small feat, by the way. You know, hiding a child, hiding a crying child for three months is no small feat, but they're able to do that. But finally, after three months, she's not able to hide him anymore. So what does she do? Well, she decides to make a basket that floats, right? She covers it in bitumen and pitch, and she puts it into the Nile. And, I, you know, I've always heard, I've heard this story for a long time since I've been a child. 
right? But it never occurred to me that she put him in the Nile as a precaution because Pharaoh had commanded his people, if you see a child, throw him in the Nile. Well, that, she, she was obeying. <laughs> I have obeyed your commands, Pharaoh. She puts him in the Nile, but she puts him in a basket, right? The basket makes its way to Pharaoh's daughter. She has compassion on this child. And of course, you know, the sister is there, and the sister, you know, just happens to see Pharaoh's daughter pick up this child, and she's like, you know, I could really help you out here. I could go find a nurse for you from the Hebrews. And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, that would be great. Go do it. And of course, she goes and calls the mother, and the mother is able to nurse her baby uh, for another season. But after uh, the child's weaned, they take the, the boy to Pharaoh's daughter, and he becomes her son. And friends, I want you to consider this for just a moment. Right? Here is the most powerful man in the world who is bent on destroying and controlling and oppressing God's people. And God is at work, though, in ways that are not expected. And what does he do? In the height of what I would say is divine irony, he says, okay, Pharaoh, go about what you're doing, but I'm actually going to make you raise the man by whom you will be overthrown. Think about that. God is at work, but he's at work in ways that are unexpected. He's at work in the compassion of a girl who sees a child and says, I will take this child in. I will raise him. I cannot, I cannot allow him to stay here in the river. And friends, I want to just give kind of a modern day exhortation to you. Uh, as I hang out with Rob Mannix every week, you know, if you hang out with Rob at all, you'll learn that he is passionate about two things, board games and adoption, right? Foster children. Right? And in the same way, God's power is at work today in families who see these, these children who have no parents, no mom, no dad, right? Who have no one to be that to them. They have compassion and they seek to foster, they seek to adopt, they take these kids into their home, they give them ridiculous amounts of their heart and soul, and God's power is at work through that, just as it was in the days of Pharaoh. And so, as we consider this, what we're seeing here is that God is at work, but he's at work in ways that we don't expect. And friends, I wanna tell you this morning uh, what, what the Scripture is doing here is it's building up Pharaoh as a man who, out of fear, chose to oppose the unseen God at every junction. And the story will play out whereby God's power will be demonstrated and actually spread throughout the whole earth as he introduces himself to Pharaoh and as he introduces himself to the people of Egypt. And friends, I just want to ask you this morning, as we consider these words, as we consider who God is, go back to your fear that you named a few moments ago, right? How are you responding to that fear presently? Are you trying to ignore it? Are you trying to control it? Are you in despair, right? Or are you putting your trust in the wrong places? You see, what God is saying to us this morning is that he, he is at work today just as much as he was at work in the people of Israel, in the place and time of the Egyptians. 
but he is at work in ways that you do not expect. He's working through the midwives. He's working through the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. He's working through children who are left in the Nile and wondering what will happen to them. He's working in ways you do not expect. That's what he did back then. That's what he's doing today. Are you turning to him with your fears this morning? Or are you turning somewhere else? You know, James will say uh, in the fourth letter, uh, fourth chapter of his epistle, he'll say, you know, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Just what we see here that Pharaoh, with all of his pride, with all of his ability, with all of his resources, that God said, I'm against you. You can try whatever you want. You can make decision after decision. You can summon all of your resources. You can print all the money in the world. And yet I'm against you. And I'm for Shipra, Uah. I'm for this Levite family. I'm for this people. And my power will be revealed. Well, friends, as we consider that this morning, as you consider where it is that you are, what fears you are dealing with, what strategies you are employing, we are going to turn to this table, and this table is going to bring us back to another time that God worked in ways that were very surprising for the people of his day. You see, God is intent on displaying his power, but he's intent on displaying it in ways that we find subversive to, to the existing powers and surprising. You see, God did subvert the power of Egypt, and we will see that very plainly as the time goes on. And he subverted the power in the most spectacular way as he brings about these plagues, as he brings about miracle after miracle, as he parts the sea in two. But those demonstrations would pale in comparison to the way that God would subvert the powers not just of that day, but of all time and the coming of another baby. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And just like in the days of Pharaoh, the rulers at that time began to be in dread. And just like Pharaoh, they began a campaign of slaughtering and executing uh, the male children of that day. But through God's power, in ways that were not expected, the Christ grew up. He confronted the powers of his day, and he subverts them how? Not with great displays of miracles, not with great display of power, but by letting them have their way with him. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that God himself comes, but he chooses first to come in weakness. He comes in humility. He comes in the identity of a servant. The powers of the day have their way with him. But God, in a display of overwhelming power, raises him from the dead and proclaims to all who will receive, I will forgive your sins. I will absorb your transgressions. I will heal every wound. I will bring you into a time and place of eternal joy if you will come to me, if you will lay down the things in your lives that are opposed to me and receive my unequivocal pardon. And so friends, what I want to invite you to do, those of you who are Christians here today, who know Christ, I want to invite you to come forward and take from this table and allow the purposes and the power of God to deal with you in your present day fears. 
I want you to taste and see the unseen power of God that is at work to subvert the powers of this world in ways we do not expect. And one of the ways you know that that's happening is that you will go from this place with a renewed courage to be faithful to God and not be concerned about the things you fear. If you're not a Christian yet today, if you're not sure what you think about this, if you have never had a time of saying, Jesus, I just, I lay down all of my objections to you, the things that I am opposed to you in, and I accept your grace. And this would be a great time to simply stay in your chair and to pray these prayers. We actually have some sample ones on the bottom of page two. Would you consider these things? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we praise you, Holy Spirit. We adore you. And Lord, I pray that you would do business with this and the things that they fear and the people they dread and the outcomes that keep them awake at night, and the things that are increasing their heart rate. Lord, I pray that you would show us your power in such a way that we would go forth from this room with great confidence to live boldly for you, to live boldly in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our families, to take risks because we believe and trust in you. And lastly, Lord, I pray for those who are here who are not sure what they think about you. I pray that you would seal the deal, that you would show them your power, that they would see it, believe it, and turn to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.